Well, did you happen to catch, um, actually it was quite an amazing story, last Sunday night, uh, 124 passengers had quite a ride on Southwest Airlines. Did you catch the story? They uh, left Chicago midway uh, under the guidance of two veteran pilots. And uh, they were making their way, at least many of them, to Dallas, but they had a stop at Branson International Missouri Airport. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, they had quite a nice trip. It was just the landing that was rather abrupt. Uh, if you, again, heard the story, uh, read it online or read it in print, once the plane landed and the brakes <laughs> and the rubber, you know, kind of dissipated, the pilots came on and the plane had come right almost up to the edge of the runway, a very short runway, and a steep, steep embankment. Did you hear that? And the pilots come on. Can you imagine this? They come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, we have landed at the wrong airport. <laughs> Is that amazing? I mean, for someone who flies a lot, that's not very comforting. And for someone who doesn't don't fly a lot, that's really not comforting. I have never heard a pilot say that. I hope I never do. And I'm not ragging on pilots, I mean, but it is amazing when you follow the story with CNN or whatever, is these guys had amazing navigational equipment. I mean, backups of backups of GPSs, and they land on Taney County Airport seven miles away from Branson. Now, I don't know what you think about that, apart from like, you're ready to go out and fly tomorrow morning, so I knew you probably had to catch a flight. But I found myself thinking about how all of us get off course. Not just pilots. Pilots are amazing people. It's easy for us to start out good, heading in the right direction, and get off course. I've been there. Have you been there driving a car? I mean, I am not a pilot, but I have found myself downtown Chicago, rush hour, going the wrong way on a one-way street. Now, that's not a good place to be. That was like off course. It was death, actually. And uh, I found myself on a mountain hike. I love to hike the mountains where I've gone off the trail a bit. Ever had that experience? And uh, I, I lose course. I get off. And sometimes I don't text in the car, but sometimes I pick up my phone, my smartphone. It hasn't figured out how to drive the car yet. But uh, I pick it up, and I'm listening, and all of a sudden I find myself veering over the center line. You ever had that experience? It's easy for all of us to get off course to have well intentions, but to really not end up at the right destination. And this is the theme of the wonderful book we are exploring together, the book of Hebrews. It is very perilous, the writer of Hebrews says, to spiritually get off course. We said last week, if you were here, as the writer of Hebrews centers much of his sermon. Remember, it is a sermon. It was used to circulate as a letter, but it's a sermon. For those of you who love sermons, we don't know who the sermonator was. But his sermon is logically cohesive. It's coherent. It's brilliant in its artistry. And it's compelling, and it's centered, the early part, but it carries like a literary shadow over the whole book, this metaphor of drift. Last Sunday, we talked about this metaphor of drift, and we made the point that this nautical metaphor plucked from classical Greek, brought into this Greek text, tells us a parallel. That is, just like a boat can be adrift without an anchor, people can be too. And the longer we drift, the more off course we get and the more lost we get and the more potential peril we face. So the question for the thoughtful reader and for the uh, sermonator of Hebrews 
is how do we keep from drifting, for goodness sakes? How do we keep from getting off course? How do we stay on course? And the writer of Hebrews continues this theme in chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible uh, in paper form, if you would turn there in the New Testament or electronic form, I'd love for you to follow along as we explore this text together. Now, chapters 1 and 2 must be seen as the introduction to his message. It's an introduction to a sermon that sets the stage for the whole book. Chapters 1 and 2 are the whole expanded introduction. They are glued together in a fabric of seamlessness in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You might say this is glued with the bridge. In chapter 2, 1 through 4, there is this warning around this nautical metaphor of drift. And when we look back from this warning, we see in chapter 1, the primary focus is to fix our eyes on Jesus, but here Jesus is focused in all his radiance of glory his Davidic kingship, but his divinity. In other words, Jesus is so unlike us. He's so transcendent in chapter 1. He is fully God. But now in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews focuses on how Jesus is so like us. Not only is he so like us, he became one of us. And so chapter 2 focuses on Jesus' humanity. Think of it this way. In his brilliant introduction of his whole message, Jesus is presented as two sides of the same Jesus coin, so to speak. Chapter 1, let's just say the head side, is Jesus' brilliant divinity, established in chapter 1, his radiant glory, and who he is in his divinity. Chapter 2 is the tail side of the coin of Jesus' full humanity. So, in this warning, how do we stay on course? And the writer gives us two central truths in this introduction of chapter 1 and 2. First, he says, stay very close. Pay close attention to the gospel. And then keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So the flow of the text follows, pay close attention to the gospel and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, chapter 2, verse 1 that we looked at last week, let's press back into it as it sets the trajectory for the rest of 2. This is God's word. Therefore, the Hebrew writer says, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay close or much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now again, lest we miss it, flashing in red lights is this warning of spiritual drift. The writer or the speaker or the sermonator of Hebrews wants us to keep this warning right on the back of our shoulder as we walk through this whole book. Last week, we said it is very perilous to drift. We looked at intellectual drift. We looked at emotional drift. We looked at cultural drift and moral drift. Now, where the Hebrew writer goes in two is primarily and perhaps the most perilous of drifting, and that is theological drift. So let me just press in before we dive into this text, looking at our current context across the American landscape of the church, where do we see theological drift around the gospel? Let me suggest two prevalent ways that we drift and that churches and parachurches and Christians and followers of Jesus, and religious people are drifting today. First, we can drift by assuming the gospel. It's the drift of assumption. 
It's like many of us, perhaps if we've grown up in a religious tradition or a Christian church or been in church, this is perilous for us. Our understanding of the gospel often is sort of a Sunday school superficiality. And we tend to think of the gospel and we hear it as a story we heard in Sunday school. You know, uh, been there, done that. I'm beyond that. I've gone to deeper truths and more enlightened progressive theological ideas. Rather than, the Hebrew writer calls us to press deeply into the inexhaustible truths of the gospel. Rather than believing the gospel wholeheartedly, rather than sharing the gospel with others, rather than preaching the gospel to ourselves, what happens when we assume the gospel is we basically shrug our shoulders, give it a theological shrug, and we are blown about by the latest winds of faddish doctrine or the newest prophetic guru, or the newest Christian teacher, or the newest Christian conversation, untethered from ecclesiastical accountability. What happens is that we begin with a benign neglect. It's not overt rejection. Benign neglect of the gospel morphs into irrelevance. And eventually, there's abandonment to mere historical curiosity. And when the gospel is lost, our call to evangelism of the lost is lost. And when the gospel is lost, our call to bold proclamation of the gospel to the lost is lost. We must be discerning, not only of spiritual leaders, of what they say, but what they do not say, what they leave out. We must not assume the gospel. It's one of the most perilous theological drifts today in the American church. Secondly, we must not dilute the gospel. This is also a peril. In particular, for those of us who may not grow up in a church, who have not studied the Bible a lot, we're not theologically tethered and founded in the Scriptures, we don't have a strong foundation, we lack theological discernment. What is the word gospel? What does it mean in the text of Scripture? This is what it means. It's not a mystery. It has great clarity. The apostles, the ones who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, declared the gospel as this. It is the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed to the world of His incarnation, His crucifixion, His ascension, His resurrection, and His soon return. Yet in our context, many times, the word gospel has become to mean almost anything that's said about the Christian faith or Christianity. Today, the gospel is redefined, often. It can be equated with God's love or justice, tolerance of just about everything, common grace, God's reign in the world in a broad way, or our call to neighborly love. Now, of course, if we have our hands on the text of Scripture, God's love and justice matter. Common grace matters. God's rule in the world and our neighborly love are important. Yes, they are, but they are not the gospel. Proper theological discernment requires us to ask the question with increasing discernment today. What is meant by the gospel? What the gospel is being proclaimed? Both when we assume the gospel and when we dilute it, we are set theologically adrift. And this kind of drift 
is the most perilous, perhaps, of any kind of drift. This is why the author of Hebrews and why the book of Hebrews is so important to all of us. He urges us to pay very close attention to what the gospel is and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And he gives us three core gospel truths, core truths of the faith delivered to us once and for all in the book of Jude that will tether us and keep us from drifting. First, he highlights that Jesus became one of us. In verses 5 through 13, he gives us a beautiful picture of humanity's place within creation and the created order. You'll notice he quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a praise to God for the crown of creation, humanity, and our unique place in creation. And you'll notice the word man and son of man. Sometimes that's confusing, but it comes from Hebrew poetry. It means the same thing. Son of man can refer to deity, it can refer to humanity. In this case, man and son of man mean humans. And how we fit in the created order. We have been made lower than the angels, just a little bit. We are glorious, but yes, now we are a glorious rune. It's against this backdrop of the image-bearing nature of humanity and the intrinsic work of humanity and how humans fit within the created order that Jesus is now placed by the Hebrew writer. In verse 9, he turns his attention, you'll notice, which is a pivotal verse in this text we must grasp. In verse 9, he turns his attention to Jesus in his incarnational glory. Look at me at verse 9. Notice what the text says. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, if you're following along in a translation, the translation I read from says, but we see him. And rather, in this case, I'd rather think that the New International Version actually translates this better. And it says, but we see Jesus. The point is, is that our eyes are to be focused on Jesus, lest we drift. A.W. Tozer, the wonderful Christian writer of the 20th century, said this, when comes into our mind when we think about God, it's the most important thing about us. Often when we hear that word God, we think of the Heavenly Father, but what comes into our mind when we think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit matter. What comes into your mind and my mind, how we see Jesus matters. And this is where the Hebrew writer has this, lock on like a bird dog. He says, lock on to who Jesus is, don't miss it. And notice where he starts. We see Jesus in his incarnation. This is not to be missed. You'll notice the text says that Jesus became one of us. He was made lower than the angels. He became human. Someone has said that he became God with human skin on. Eugene Peterson does a great job with this. When he translates or he paraphrases John 1, the eternal Logos becomes flesh, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. And this is what Eugene Peterson says of John 1. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. I like that. Max Lucado is a wonderful writer, and again, if you have not discovered Max. He's a pastor in Texas, and uh, he wrote a wonderful book on the incarnation of Jesus around the Advent season. It's called God Came Near. And he talks about Jesus in ways that sort of shock us, I think. He talks about Jesus having pimples, maybe. (laughs) His knees maybe were bony. He felt weak. He had a headache. He grew weary. He got colds. He had body odor. (laughs) 
And then he says this. He says, to think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uh, uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. Now, notice what Max says. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant. Packaged, predictable, but don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him, be, let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us Notice how Max Lucado and the writer of Hebrews brings our focus on Jesus in his incarnation and his crucifixion. They are connected in this text. Where the Hebrew writer wants us to know that our God has wounds. He has entered into our suffering. Not only that, notice the explicit emphasis on Jesus tasting death for us. Jesus was born to die, to defeat death to set, it, set us free from the terrifying clutches of death. And notice in verses 11 through 13, Jesus has become a brother to us. He has entered into the human family. We are a part of his family. Jesus became one of us. Secondly, Jesus defeated Satan for us. Notice the emphasis of this in verses 14 through 16. The text says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one, notice, who has the power of death, that is the devil or Satan, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, if you've been a part of this series so far and been reading through Hebrews, you'll notice the strong emphasis on angels. And up to this point, it's all been on the good angels, you know, our messengers that protect us. Now, we meet a very bad angel, and it's very explicit in the text. The Hebrew writer wants us to know that we face a brutal adversary. He wants us to know that Satan is the ultimate rebel who is the chief ringleader of the cosmic rebellion that humanity has been caught up in. This evil one opposes God and his people and his church. And you may be saying, you know, are you another pastor who always talks about Satan? You know, Satan behind every bush. Well, I know Satan probably hangs out behind some bushes, but maybe not all of them. But I don't want us to have such skepticism because of overstatement and irresponsible teaching to miss the centrality and the importance of understanding the adversary we face. The text anchors us here. You may not believe a lot in Satan, but this text tells us that Satan believes in you and me. He works to defeat, distract, and deceive you and me. He works overtime, incessantly with hell's fury, to get you to drift from the gospel and from Jesus Christ. And let me say this, the evil one seldom dons horns and pitchforks. Most of the time, the evil one dons ecclesial robes and false teachers. The evil one wants to deceive you, 
deceive me, to distract you, to distract me, to get you drifting, to get me drifting, to get us off course. The Bible teaches from the beginning to the end that your life, this fallen world, is not a playground. It is a battlefield. A war is raging, and if we could see it, we would be destroyed. It's only the grace of God that we just get glimpses of it. So hideous is the evil one. So his fury is so great against Christ and his beautiful church that we could not even begin to comprehend it if we could see it fully, but we feel it. And Christ's death on the cross, the Hebrew writer says, means this adversary is defeated. He is a defeated foe. And those of us who embrace the gospel are set free from the cruel clutches of his mastery over our lives as slaves of him. Jesus' death defeated death. This is what Hebrews says. And the evil one who holds death in his hands. And as we scoot forward to the end of the story in Revelation, at the end of time, we see in chapter 20, verse 14, and 21, 4, death shall be no more. Jesus became one of us. He defeated Satan for us. And notice where the text builds. That Jesus, our Lord, our precious Lord, paid the ultimate price for us. Look at verse 17. Notice the logical connection of therefore. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus' death on the cross dealt a mortal blow to the evil one. And as a faithful high priest, his innocent shed blood became an atoning sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of a holy, righteous God and fully paid the penalty for your sin and mine. Jesus, who loved his world that was lost, who loved you and me beyond what we can fathom, paid your debt in full on the cross. He died in your place and my place. Jesus, who became one of us, who has defeated Satan for us, who has paid the ultimate price for us. Hebrews declares, has rescued us. That's the glorious good news of a daring rescue. One of the writers that I enjoy his writing is Donald Miller. I don't know if you read some of his books. Blue Like Jazz is an interesting book. Fascinating in how he tells stories. He's a marvelous storyteller. He tells the story of Navy SEALs who... We're on a covert rescue operation to rescue some hostages that have been held in a very dark, dank room, and the Navy SEALs burst into the room. These hostages have been in prison for months. It was filthy, dark, and they found these hostages kind of cowered in the corner, curled up, terrified. They didn't respond when the Navy SEALs said, we're Americans, we've come to rescue you, we're soldiers. And they just stayed there. So one of the seals took off his gear, his weapon. He went down. He laid next to him like this in a fetal position. He looked him in the eye. He says, look me in the eye. I'm an American. I've come to rescue. I'm here for you. And that was the transformation moment when they looked into the eyes of their rescuer. They joined him in the rescue and were saved. Donald Miller ends up with this wonderful story with these insightful thoughts. He says, when I understood that the decision to follow Jesus was very much like the decision the hostages had to follow in their rescue, I knew then 
that I needed to decide whether or not I would fully follow him. The decision for me was simple once I asked myself, is Jesus the Son of God? Are we being held captive in a world run by Satan? A world filled with brokenness. And he says, I do believe Jesus can rescue me from this condition. The writer of Hebrews is painting us a sober story. Martin Luther said it in his great hymn of the evil one himself. Our foe is great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal but greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. The thief comes, John says, to only kill, steal, and destroy. He's come to kill, steal, kill, steal, and destroy your life, my life, my joy, my goodness. And it says in the text, but Jesus has come to give us life, an abundant life. Have you been rescued from Jesus? Rescued for Jesus. Have you been rescued by him? Do you recognize your need for Jesus? Is he your Savior and Lord? Have you in faith and repentance been rescued? And if you've been rescued, is your eye on him? Do you have your eye fixed on him? Because if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will not drift from him. But we all wrestle with drifting, don't we? I want to suggest three challenges that often cause me to drift in my life and I trust It's a challenge for you. First is this, fear. Fear can set us all adrift. We live in a very fearful time, don't we? There are many fears we face. And your heart may be very fearful this morning underneath your Sunday smiles, friends. You may be fearing tomorrow morning at your work, the decision you have to make, the difficulty. You may be fearing a loss in your life the loss of a job, a loss of a loved one. You may be fearing failing a class at school. You don't want to go there tomorrow. You don't want to go to your workplace because you fear your boss. You may be fearing being rejected by your friends. And as you send your children into the world, your grandchildren, you may be very afraid for them because our culture is imploding. We live in a very fearful time. Isn't it wonderful that the good news, if we're tethered to it, replaces fear with faith and joy and hope. And perhaps our greatest fear is the fear of death. Notice how explicitly this is addressed in this text. The good news of the gospel frees us from freaking out about dying. Throughout the history of the Christian church, as you look through the portals of history, Christians proclaimed the gospel, authenticated the gospel, not just by their different life, but their their amazing deaths. Dallas Willard, who's a friend of Christ's community, who's a friend to me and so many, taught us so much about life. Dallas Willard entered into glory this year. Professor at USC. I'll never forget many times when I was with him or a handful of guys. He would pray over us. Lord, bless these men. Grant them a radiant life. And grant them a radiant death. Dallas understood this text. To be tethered, tethered to the gospel and to keep our eyes on Jesus. Photius, who's not someone you read very often, I don't. He was an early church father in the second century. 
He looked at this text with brilliant insight. Photius penned these words. Now by his death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The inventor and the leader of sin. Sin became a disease, he writes. However, as we have been released from the oppression of that slavery, so we have been also delivered from the fear of death. Before we feared and tried to avoid death as a supreme and invincible evil, but now we perceive it as a prelude, a transition to life. Indeed. Fear in life or fear in death can set us adrift. We need not fear anything if we are in Christ. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hebrew writer looks to Hebrews 6, 19 and says, the anchor of our soul is sure and steadfast. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And last, or third, second, temptation can cause us to drift as well, not just fear. You may be struggling with temptation this morning. There are a few things in our lives that untether us more than temptation. Temptation to lie, to cheat, to steal, to overeat, to view pornography, to be involved in a sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, to gossip about others, to nurture a critical or bitter spirit to others, or to be spiritually prideful of our knowledge of the Bible or our spirituality. Isn't it interesting, the end of chapter two, the Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus is your helper. He's my helper. He's able to help us in our temptation. The helper is not just the Holy Spirit. The helper is Jesus himself. And the grave danger about temptation is that it can sabotage the affections of our hearts. It can draw us away from what our soul truly loves with all kinds of counterfeits that will never satisfy. Temptation disorders us. It gets our eyes off Jesus. It sabotages us. It hurts others. And it draws us off course. So what temptation are you facing today? When we embrace the gospel, when we fix our eyes on Jesus... When we become his apprentice and follow him, the lure of temptation is less of a gravitational pull in our life. And the glory of Christ and loving him and serving him and honoring him become that which is most satisfying and beautiful. We have him supernatural empowerment. Fear can set us adrift. No question. What fear are you facing? Temptation can set you adrift, set me adrift. But third, let me touch on before I close. Distraction can set us adrift too. You and I live in a globalized world, don't we? 24-7. Nanoseconds. Nothing ever stops. The pressure we feel in our jobs, the frenzied pace of our marginless life friends, the constant bombardment of information from computers, smartphones, distract us from living an intentional, gospel-centered, apprenticeship life. Last night, as Liz and I were sitting in our home, it hit me. We were both sitting there, surrounded by distractions. Our TV was on because we were checking the Jayhawk score which was really spiritual. (laughs) Her laptop was there. Her mini iPad was there. My laptop was there. Our home computer was there. Her smartphone was there. My smartphone was there. And the landline was there. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with the technology in itself. But how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? How do we live intentional lives of apprenticeship if our eyes are constantly fixed on our smartphones? I can hardly take a day off without looking at it all the time. And the Lord is challenging me. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus if they're always on a computer screen or a smartphone? How do we do it? If Satan cannot get us to sin directly, he will take us a more indirect route. Technology is a good servant. It's a terrible master. Are you set adrift by a distracted, busy, hurried life? Or will you pay close attention to the gospel, fix your eyes on Jesus, and embrace intentional living as a yoked apprentice of Jesus Christ? And will you stay tethered to one another in community? Are we staying on course or are we drifting? The farther we get off course, the more lost we become. And friends, the greatest danger that you and I face is not landing at the wrong airport. The gravest danger to your soul, your life, and mine is facing a crisis eternity because we have drifted. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, keep us. Keep us. Keep me. Keep Christ's community. Keep your church from drifting. May we heed the loving yet urgent warnings of your inspired word. May we tether our lives to your glorious gospel. May we embrace our Lord Jesus Christ in his grace on this morning. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus and may we cling to the truth that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again.